Listening to a very special edition of the Darkest Hour podcast. I am John Evans, and I'm joined as always by my two amigos. That would be Michael T. Kuchek and Vikram Wheat. Gentlemen, how are you this evening? Vic, let's start with you. Well, I mean, I, I have to say, as, as happy as I am to be back uh, doing a podcast with you guys. You know, I wish it was it was under less less uh, dour circumstances. Yes, I join you guys with a heavy heart. On the one hand, I am pleased to once again ride on the darkest hour convoy, but on the other hand, uh, we're brought together for a very special occasion, a very special episode. Yes, uh, we are going to do a meticulous frame by frame analysis of. There's always vanilla. Which is, uh, you know, a classic, classic George Romero film that everyone has seen a million times, but we're going to bring it to you in a, in a new light. No, of course, uh, the sad occasion that brings us together on this evening is the recent passing of the great George Romero. And uh, we're going to, you know, just kind of have a free-ranging conversation here. We're not necessarily going to focus on, uh, you know, uh, specific films too much. I mean, we'll of course discuss them, but we're not going to do our usual, um, loving autopsy, as we like to say. We're just going to, you know, take a little time out and discuss what, uh, this filmmaker has meant to us and some of our favorite things about, uh, his films and their incredibly lasting influence on the genre we love so much and on everything that we do. I would imagine we would all three of us say that. So starting off, I think it would be logical to kind of, you know, somewhat mirror our usual format and go around the horn and just kind of talk about your first experience with Night of the Living Dead. Uh, Vic, what was your uh, first viewing of this film like and what impact did, did it have on you? This would be one of those first sort of early uh, uh, horror movies that I experienced where my mom was like, you know, you really should. If you're really into horror, Vic, you should probably see Night of the Living Dead. And so that was when she introduced me to Psycho like that when I was about 10, 11, 12. Um, you know, a few sort of classics, The Birds, some of those some of those kinds of things, them. Um, and so uh, I really credit her with saying, look, like, you're, if, if this is your thing, if this is the thing you're into, then, you know, I'm going to make sure that you have a, a good classical education in it. Um, and so she, at some point, we brought home a, what I'm sure was a VHS of Night of the Living Dead. Uh, and I'm also sure that much like Psycho, when it started up and I saw that it was in black and white, I went, oh, man. Like, <laughs> Little did you know. <laughs> um, and, you, you know, there... Uh, 
a lot of the interesting subtext that's going on within the, I mean, you know, the, the casting of a black male in the lead in 1968 and the, you know, the political uh, subtext and that sort of thing, like all washed right over me. But I will never forget watching, you know, the zombies eating entrails and the, the woman eating the bug off of the tree and the little girl with the trowel and like, all the shit that 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 you that that people still talk about, the things that that connected with audiences, young and old, you know, from every political stripe and and race and and religion and everything else in 1968, connected with me when I was 12 years old in uh, you know Portsmouth, Virginia. Um, and so yeah, I mean, it I would say it hit me right away that this was an important movie and that this guy had done something pretty amazing. How many films had you seen uh, in the horror genre before your your first dance with Night? Oh, I, lots. Yeah. Okay. So it wasn't like your intro to the genre. This was more sort of like, all right. Well, if you love horror, you got to see this. That yeah. I, I mean, I can say with certainty that I had seen Return of the Living Dead before I'd seen this. For instance, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Demons. You know, so a lot of sort of eighties. If you if you trolled a. a the the horror aisles of a of a video store in nineteen God I'm gonna do a little math here you know nineteen ninety one nineteen ninety two you know if it had like a cool cover I had probably seen it okay yeah. awesome all right so yeah it was not like your uh, you were a virgin to the genre and it still really impressed you when you saw it uh, for the first time sure. uh, Mike how about you. I have a really clear memory of uh, I was 10, 10 years old, and uh, my parents left me home alone so they could go to a party on Halloween. And uh, it was very much a, Mike, pop some popcorn, sit around and see what's on TV. And because it's, I, I think I ran into night in a way that a lot of people ran into it. And that's purely because it was, it was just being shown on Halloween because it was a scary movie. And, you know, due to a copyright fuck up, it was in public domain. So it got shown a lot, but, uh, it's, you know, there's like, uh, you know, sit in the basement, flip around, let's see what's on. And, uh, yeah, Night of the Living Dead was on. And I watched that for the first time in exactly that scenario, bowl, big bowl of popcorn in my lap. And the lights turned off, sitting in our family room basement type scenario, uh, glued to the TV set, man. And that scared the fucking pickles out of me. Holy shit. Holy shit did that movie scare me. And um, I don't know that I, I had a particular – like I, I enjoyed horror movies. I enjoyed you know scary film. I, I'd seen The Shining before that. I know that for a fact. But um, – uh, that that was that, uh, the Shining was the movie that that my mom was like, uh, you know, do you want to watch this? I know it's scary, but you know, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> but Night of the Living Dead was, um, yeah, it was just that classic horror movie scenario. You know, the kids sitting around on Halloween night watching horror movies. You know, whatever was on, and that dude, I fucking, and I, I, I could easily say that I, I, that plan of bike as deep into my brain as it goes um you know it's almost impossible to drift into hyperbole in terms of you know discussing not only you know what george romero means to the the genre as a whole but i mean just a my own hardwiring as a human being and i can very easily say that 
you know, besides my parents, there is a small collection of people in this world who have crafted my path in life. And George Romero was definitely one of them. You know, uh, he's he's kind of the the one of the faces on the Mount Rushmore of this genre and for good reason. And, uh, you know, very much uh, a part of, you know, uh, I, I'll, I'll tell you this. Um, I'm literally in post-production on a film that I'm working on right now. That was film that I was shooting last last month. And we're I mean, in terms of approaching the audio um, and we'll get around to this later. But I don't think anybody has matched night of the living dead for pure horror audio uh there is something he brought a level of i don't know if it was romero himself or if it was just his post-production team his sound guys but there is a brilliant weirdness to the the audio of that entire film that i don't think anyone has ever done since to be honest so, anyway, so that, strange that, considering yeah. how the poor versions of this film, you know, it being public mm-hmm. domain and all that, that have circulated, mm-hmm. how that still remains true. You know, like I, when you said that, I, I had this thought of a certain like grunt or groan that one of the zombies makes. Like at some point, it's like a, yeah, it just kind of yeah. has an echo. You know, and the dull thud of Johnny's head hitting the the tombstone and so many little, little details, uh, you know, of the audio uh, of the sound design and the audio of this film are, are tremendous for setting the, the mood and the atmosphere, not to mention the soundtrack is also I, chilling. Yeah. I, I, and of course the, the mountain Rushmore or, you know, the, the Everest of, of the entire thing is that moment where the little girl turns on her mom with the trowel in the basement and uh, oh, yeah. I, I, I don't think that, in that sequence blew me the fuck away. And to this day, I have never seen anybody match it. I, I, I've seen I, I, I haven't really even seen a lot of people try. You know, I, and there's so many things that so many filmmakers lift blatantly. There's so many like obvious influences. I and of course, you know, uh, every zombie movie ever made, you know, beyond like you know the early ones like White Zombie. You know, I and all of our modern entire zombie movie, you know, uh, industry uh, wouldn't exist without this man and without this film. You know, so I, I mean, obviously, we're talking about the influence of of you know the the Walking Dead you know, creature, you know, the zombie is as flesh eating ghoul. But, you know, if we're going to talk about the influence of the movie as a whole, I mean, everyone's copied zombies. No one's copied the sound design. <laughs> yeah. The, the scene that you're referring to, there's a, a really trippy, distorted yes. quality to her screams and this sort yes. of echoing that has this very disorienting dreamlike uh, quality that, that makes the the whole scene scene seem surreal in in, in a yeah. powerful way, without diminishing oh, sure. the 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 brutality and the shock of the sequence, mm-hmm. which I believe, yeah, is still very effective to this day. Totally yeah, agree because, with you there. Yeah, yeah, the screaming doesn't drown out the wet chopping of the instrument going into her flesh, and uh, holy God, you know I. <laughs> I, if anything, I'm glad not a lot of people have tried to uh, to lift this kind of thing because I, I, you know, I'll be more than happy to be the guy to jump on <laughs> jump on that football. You know, I I watched a bit of just in, in preparation for this. I watched a bit of a documentary called Birth of the Living Dead, 
Um, that's that's mostly a long interview with uh, George Romero. It was a uh, uh, Larry Fessenden's uh, Glass Eye Picks produced it, so it's you can tell it's a little low budget and everything else. But you could listen. I could just listen to George Romero tell stories about this for ages. But they did a really good job of tracking down where who everybody was in this and and sort of putting it all in the context of Pittsburgh and everything else, which is something I really want to talk about. But it's interesting you guys talk about the audio design because one of the things you learn is that two of the actors in the movie were people who had had started basically an audio uh, uh you know production equipment company mm-hmm. and so they had they were providing the equipment for free and acting in it um and everybody but so that was why they were able to have this this sort of good audio equipment all the equipment because Romero was shooting um commercials local commercials in Pittsburgh he'd started a little production company mm-hmm. they were doing um he was saying he says in the in the documentary that people used to do you know they were all the all the commercials were live the sportscasters were always drinking beer like you know iron iron city iron city beer like this is what we drink when we watch football games um and so he was one of the people who went to the local TV station was like you know you can film this and then your your announcers don't get hammered uh, <laughs> um, and so they have cuts. You get to see clips of, of, you know, they did something for Duke beer and something for Iron City beer and something that looked like a, a apparently sort of a semi-famous Calgon commercial uh, that that was sort of a, a, a riff on uh, Fantastic Voyage. So he'd done all this stuff and had all these connections. I mean, it really is. I think we've, um, you know, the, the the story, Mike. I think some of what maybe some of what you're going through with. Death Metal and some of what uh, went on with uh, Darkness Rising, the movie that just came out with me, where he was a guy who was like, I'm going to make a movie. I'm calling in all my favors, everybody I know. And so they go through and you discover that half the zombies are like account executives from advertising companies that he'd worked with at the production company. And like, you know, everybody in it was a producer and a makeup person. And one of the the producers who I mean again, ten people kicked in six hundred bucks. That was the that was the budget. That was how he raised the money for it. Mm-hmm. One of them ran one of them ran a meatpacking plant, and so he just brought these intestines and liver cow livers and shit. And that's what you see the meeting when they're doing it. Um, when they wanted police, you know, he literally just called the police in Pittsburgh and said, "I'm making a movie. Would you guys like?" To- would you guys like to be in it? Mm-hmm. And so they showed up with police vans and dogs and all this kind of stuff. Um, they even they got these helicopter shots. The helicopter shots they have was the just the local like radio traffic copter just let their cameraman ride in the helicopter with him. <laughs> yeah, I think the relationship that he had with the community and his you know wealth of connections and colleagues. Because of the experience that that he and, and and the core team behind this film had, they they could do so much with the technology of the time. Because you know, for a first film, these people were tremendously experienced on a technical level because of all of these commercials and industrial films, and like just they were perfectly comfortable with everything that they were using. And I think that's part of why the movie is you know in, in a sense so slick. Because they really, really knew what they were doing, and all of these resources could be marshaled in such a way that the film has a richness that generally, yeah, a low-budget first film just 
frankly never has because people are so inexperienced. I mean, I, I think that, and I've always compared this movie to Evil Dead in some ways, you know, both because I've studied their production more than any two films ever, um, and also just because, you know, the amount of ingenuity applied to very little budget is is just so inspiring in in both cases but they're also very different when you think about you know these people were not middle-aged but you know they were experienced and generally uh had you know a tremendously different life experience and network of relationships it's not like oh my little brother is the extra you know right all right um yeah yeah yeah. but anyway i want to double back to my experience with the film like you mike you know, this movie hit me at the right time. And I think it's, you know, in a sense, even though Vic, like it seems, sounds like you loved it regardless. I almost wish you had seen it at a more, even more formative age, because for me, this really was the introduction to horror in a real way. I had seen silver bullet at this point. I had seen, uh, the, uh, Corman mask of the red death or yeah, I think that's what it was called. Uh, with Vincent Price, and, you know, like a handful, not even a handful of genre films, and I may not have, you know, I I was covering my eyes before that, and I want to say I was around 10, I think, is probably uh, the right age, but, you know, pretty darn sheltered uh, childhood up to this point in terms of what what I had seen, and the movie, I was spellbound from, you know, the the opening sequence of the car coming up the road and the music and the landscape, the minimalist score and just the foreboding that builds in that open. I was just absolutely, I want to be here and, and yet I don't, you know, as, as Mm -hmm. a, as a member of this audience and the film traumatized me. Uh, I mean, I I just remember, (laughs) you know, trying to play with my action figures after, after watching it. And, you know, being inspired to, to you know, do a zombie uh, scenario with my action figures, but yet having this, like, just deep shock that was, like, shrouding my creative consciousness and my just general uh, state of mind that made it difficult for me to even concentrate on playing and kind of gave me this dread of, of going to bed that night, you know, and, and, and the, the anxiety about what my dreams would be. And I quickly went beyond that, that level to watching this film many, many times. And I, I just think that it, it is maybe not in my top 10, maybe not even my top 25, because, you know, I've, I've been around and seen a ton of movies. And, you know, there are, there are so many films that I've developed a relationship with that I might at this point prefer to watch or rewatch. But I, I think that there's no doubt this, this movie is still you know, right in that area for me and something that I will always, always love revisiting. And I I think part of it is the big takeaway, both in his career and in this film, is that he depicts recognizably everyday average people as his protagonists, especially in these early, you know, the first five or six of his films. And I think that that adds a verisimilitude and a believability and an impact to these films that is not unmatched. It's not unique, but it, it's a one of the sort of, I think, underrated hallmarks of a Romero film is that these are not types. These are not superheroes. These are not Ash, uh, 
These are not, you know, like people who transcend sort of the limitations that we would expect someone to have in a situation like this. They are like really, really ordinary folks with all of those flaws and watching them deal with this stuff, like just it, 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 it disturbed me so tremendously with night in that like one of the things that is so horrifying about this film, it's not just the gore or the deaths or the macabre, you know, atmosphere or the threat or any of the things that you expect from a horror film. I, I truly believe that what disturbs me the most about night of the living dead is that you can look at each of these people as a normal person who meets a certain end in this situation. And the yeah. ends are so fantastically cruel, you know, like so many horrible and, and, and to some degree random deaths happen in this film. But they're like they have a almost Lovecraftian, you know, tinge of horribleness <laughs> that just yeah, I, really yeah, disturbs I, me. I, 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 you, you were just going to go lay some flowers on mom's grave and. You know, by the end of it, you're eaten alive by uh, by by cor- walking corpses. It's uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, just like start with Johnny and um, and uh, Barbara. Yeah, he's trying to defend his his sister from this mm-hmm. man, and he dies this rather you know ignominious yet very believable death, where yeah, he just yeah. you know hits his head on the tombstone, and then she has a much, much nastier journey ahead of her, which culminates in her brother returning for her. It's yeah. horrible. Oh, oh dude. Well, I, I mean, especially in terms of, I mean, you're talking about types. It's like, you know, I've, I've seen, you know, 100 million, you know, more contemporary horror films in which, uh, you know, the, the cast, such as it is, is, you know, here's the, you know, here's the jock guy and here's the stoner dude. And yeah, you know, just all these kind of cabin in the woods type tropes, you know, and uh, you look at Night of the Living Dead, for instance, and it's like Ben, Barbara, you know, the the angry middle aged guy. I forgot the character's name, but I, mean, you know, Cooper, the, I believe. Yeah, yeah, Cooper. yeah. It's like, yeah, cause, yeah, the Coopers. Harry um, Cooper. Yes, the Coopers, uh, the young couple. Uh, I mean, Tom all and of them Judy. Are, yeah, extremely believable, real people, like you were just saying. And uh, another very common trope is, you know, especially within you know more contained horror, it's um, you know the note that you always get from execs or producers or whoever is always, uh, you know, we need the more conflict between the characters. And very often, you'll see these movies in which they just start bickering about whatever, you know, uh, just to kind of check that box. But the conflict between these characters in this farmhouse is very real. Like, I, I Mr. Cooper is kind of, he's very angry about it, but I, you know, the dude's under some pressure. We get it. And, uh, you know, his, you know, he's, he's not making, stu- none of these characters make stupid choices. You know, I, I, there are choices that I, Ben is adamant. He's just like, you know, if you get down there, you know, you're going to be trapped in there and that, 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 that. And what do you know? It turns out that Cooper is right. I think that that argument is such a metaphor, you know, like the, the basement is the safest place. That's where we should go. No, we don't want to get, we don't want to get trapped down there. Like so much of, of social life and political life and the decisions of government and, you know, uh, any, any institution that we have or business or family for that matter has these 
you know, debates that are based in fundamental logic from contrasting point of view perspectives that, you know, that it is the conflict and the paralysis and the, the, you know, discord that it creates that, that is really the problem. Like if, if one side had, had won perhaps, you know, and they just proceeded then, you know, maybe either path could work. But the fact that we will always be divided and we'll always have these conflicts, like I think that you can apply that to so many aspects of life. And I think Romero grasped that and that was really what he was going for with this was that this is the problem with us. Humanity is really what he was trying to say. And it is interesting. I, I and again, talking about tropes, uh, when we're discussing aliens, you know, we touch on the idea that we've seen, you know, hundreds of movies that are just taking that basic setup. And I, especially within the horror genre, I mean, how many movies would we not have if we hadn't gotten the, the template of a disparate group of people are trapped in a contained place and under siege by, you know, fill in the blank, you know, supernatural, what, who's it's, you know, uh, I mean, how many horror films are exactly just that? I mean, I've written several of them myself. I so think we it's all like, have. Yeah, exactly. So it's, you know, uh, the, the first, uh, full length, uh, screenplay that I ever wrote in film school back in the day was driven by the, the idea of, you know, what if Barbara knew martial arts? You know, it's like <laughs> I wrote a script called Zombie Killer. You know, and it was just like, what if the people inside that house could fight back and like and affect it like, you know, martial arty kind of way? You know, wouldn't that be awesome? And, you know, that was my action horror, you know, freshman year screenplay, you know, so. Many people do. subsequently um, played that fantasy out in, in other films. Uh, yeah. After, after oh, yeah, I, 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 yeah. I, I mean, a hundred million times since then. Yeah. Uh, you know, Dead Alive is, is the one that sticks out to me the most with that, you know, with that priest. Yes. But, uh, yes. you know, I kick but, ass um, for the Lord. Exactly. But, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, it, 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 it was it would be impossible to realistically understates the importance of the genre that this film bears. I don't know if there are, you know, films that preceded this that had as much impact on the genre in such a way. I mean, you could say psycho had as much impact, but um, I mean, did the birds come before night of the living dead? You know, did we have a, a siege movie of this nature? Before uh, night? Yeah, I think that was sixty three. If I if I have to to guess, the birds okay. was yeah sixty three. But yeah. I mean, like you, I think that your point is well taken, and and like if we could literally spend an hour just listing all of the things that have been inspired by this film, essentially, and yeah. like it's a it's an entire universe that I, yeah I, I don't think there's anything like it, especially yeah. you know, certainly if we say in the horror genre. Yeah, I, 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 it is as close to an Ur movie that this genre has. The uh, the script that got me my managers, it was the first script that I ever took out wide, although it did not sell, um, was was essentially uh, what if, uh, let's say, Barbara had seen a zombie movie. It was called mm-hmm. The Plan. And it was, I mean, again, it was a zombie apocalypse movie, but that was the hook, was that nobody in a zombie apocalypse movie has ever seen a zombie apocalypse movie. And the reason it didn't sell was because we took it out the week after Zombieland came out. Ah, 
platform. Right. So, you know, I mean, so that was, uh, uh, you want to know how, how influential it was uh, 40 years out from when it was made. There was impending uh, in, in on uh, my own my own career, my own writing. And also, j- just to throw it out there, I mean, has any other film so completely reinvented a classic monster? Uh, you know, it's like kind of werewolves are werewolves, vampires are vampires. But before this movie, you know, zombies were, you know, they they were like a third string creature. You know, they they appeared in like really old voodoo movies. You know. Yeah, I mean, uh, like, you could say that, that I, what he has done, Romero, is akin to what Stoker did with Dracula. I mean, like, uh, he, he absolutely yes. created something in the Pantheon that mm. now, like, it is right there with the werewolf or any, you know, anything else. Like, the rules, the mythology, he created all of that in, in, in much the same way that Stoker did. Uh, you know, Brett, he... Breathe fresh life into the undead, if that makes any sense. <laughs> One other thing that I think is is groundbreaking and worth mentioning is, uh, you know, we were just talking about the look of the film and the production, and I think that because of his very, you know, grassroots, uh, you know, the fact that he was, you know, getting a news chopper and he was shooting commercials and the entire thing, I, there, there's a, a verite element mm-hmm. to it. It looks like news footage. Uh, and I, of course there, there's actual quote unquote news footage, you know, within the film, but I mean, it, it's extremely stripped down and I, I, you know, obviously there were a lot of, uh, color movies in the theaters at this time, but, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think that there were any films that were this raw, especially within, in the genre before this, uh, you know, much as I like, you know, the Val Lutons of the world and, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, Vincent Price movies and whatnot. But, you know, for a long time, horror was like, you know, in castles and they're very stagey. Uh, and this is, you know, the movie that that put you right there. I mean, you know, if we identify with these characters as A, because they're realistic people, but also B, because we shoot it in such a way that's identifiable to, you know, the I'm sure the television programs of the time, you know, I, yeah. I I think Easy Rider was 69, and isn't that considered like the first big verite American film? And and this beat that to the punch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think you can see that it laid the groundwork for something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But just as an interesting aside, um, I don't know if you guys knew this, but um, again, in that that, uh, documentary that I was watching, Romero said that anybody who was in sort of quote-unquote the business at that time, if you were working – you did some work for Fred Rogers on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Of course, yeah. And so one of his earliest commercial films was a segment for Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood where Mr. Rogers had a tonsillectomy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, um... He my... said, and they showed a little clip of it, and it is terrifying, but it very much captures, like, you can see, again, that sense of, re- I don't know, reality or verite kind of kind of style or whatever. I mean, you can start to see it in that, like, this is what happens when you go to the doctor, and the doctor puts you puts you under, and then you wake up, and your tonsils are gone. You can't see anybody's face, but they have such kind eyes. 
And yeah. somehow when, when, when George Romero shoots that, it's fucking creepy still. <laughs> my, uh, very swiftly, I'll, I'll give you my own little six degrees. Uh, a million years ago when I was uh, at a, working in a management company, uh, it fell into our hands a pile of uh, – so someone basically had the rights to a bunch of old, like old Steelers games, basically – and uh, I was trying to set it up with, uh, like, the football channel. You know, I, I wasn't going to sell it to ESPN or, like, you know, bigger names. But Vic has know, a half was, chub right now already. Yeah, there, 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 was, there was kind of a, a football channel. It was, you know, it was like the Ocho, you know. Um, and I was trying to sell it to the, this giant pile of, of football games to these guys for, you know, $25,000 or something like that. And it was kind of one of those things where, like, they're super interested right at the top of it. You know, uh, interest wanes, the deal didn't go through, la la la. But, um, you know, I, I was mostly interested in this because uh, apparently Romero himself had shot at least a, a good chunk of these. Um, you know, so it was, uh, yeah, I mean, it was classic steel, you know, that, that kind of washed out look that you get from, you know, the, you know, the, the, the color photography of the late 60s, early 70s, you know, and uh, you know, you've got kind of a, Oh, yeah, by the way, George Romero shot a lot of this. Hey, remember, uh, Mike, we went to, you and I went to see uh, the first of his zombie films after Land of the Dead at Scream Fest. And alas, we were uh, underwhelmed. Yeah, I, I, I do. St- I, and, you know, speaking of screen, yeah, I and, uh, ran, 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 ran out of the sea diary. And um, I didn't hate Land. Like, some people hated Land. Oh, I, I do not I thought- hate Land. Yeah, I, I I thought it was it, it, I, w- I would call it like a solid double, if I'm, uh, maybe even a soft triple. You know, I I you know I, I thought it was definitely watchable, and you know it has its moments. And Diary, I was deeply unimpressed by. Uh, it does have the one scene with the the deaf Quaker guy who throws dynamite at people. I thought that was amusing and uh, well edited. Um, I, I mean, that's the other thing too is uh, his editing was always really on point, man. Oh, the yes. editing was always extremely sharp, and I and if we're going to talk about you know verite look, you know excellence and and in you know I would almost say groundbreaking sound design in some places, and uh, you know it's also the editing was always really tight, you know, and definitely a character or an add to the the project. You know? Oh yeah, I mean he edited a lot of his early films himself, and he had a I, I would say for his time more cuts than than anyone. You know, like mm-hmm. there was so many quick shots in the way he would assemble a scene and jump around from you know the master to the the medium shots and the close ups and all to tremendous you know intent and effect. It was yeah way way ahead of its time. You know, it predated. It pejoratively M- MTV cutting, but it had that mm-hmm. type of propulsiveness. And I just want to say really quick on the Verite thing, like this this movie is a weird hybrid, Night of the Living Dead. Um, I, I think that like there's some really old-fashioned vibes in the film. But, you know, like it's a marriage of that. Like when, when Barbara is running to the house and, you know, mm-hmm. she's very theatrical and the music is very theatrical as she, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, breaks into this house and is you know, menaced and, and um, frightened by the, the the taxidermied animals and whatnot. You know, it has a very old school vibe. But then, yeah, the sort of the intercutting of media 
and, you know, the news reports and, and the police and, you know, like depictions of other people doing things are so convincing and so mm-hmm. uh, like what you would watch on television if you're watching coverage of, you know, the Vietnam War or reporting of uh, riots or, you know, the civil rights movement or things of that nature that, that it, it definitely lent to authenticity that I, I think was probably pretty unprecedented. At the time. Yeah, the the one and only thing that that kind of jangles with that that verte element uh, of the project as a whole is you can kind of tell that he probably cast quite a few of his actors from local theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's a, there's a staginess to some of their well, not Harry, not all. Harry is very theater. Uh, Harry and I would say the actor who plays Ben has his moments um, when uh, I think it's mostly when he's describing uh, an attack of zombies that he's seen and they're kind of clinging to a, a vehicle and, right. you know, and uh, uh, he, he drifts into a very stagey place in, in that read. But I, and there are a lot of other places that he's very, you know, grounded, very real. So I, and it's, it's, it's kind of, you know, when, when you give the actors either like really big emotional beats and they start, you know, shouting to the back row a little bit either that or if they have like monologues like sometimes they'll kind of drift into you know community theaterness i would <laughs> i would say that you could tell that Dwayne jones has you know spoken the bard a few times uh, yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. There, there's yeah there, there, there's there's you know he's kind of holding a skull a little bit um but I, and again, it's it's not all the way through. I wouldn't. I none of these no. actors. I would I would peg as bad or in, no. or yeah. I I think they they just have kind of, kind of their like theatrical moments is more of, along the lines. But even then, I mean, I love this movie that so much that you know I just accept those those elements as charming instead of a detriment. You know? Absolutely. You find, I think you find that in a lot of these movies, though. I mean, that's it's when you talk about Halloween. You know, look, Jamie Lee Curtis is is turned out to be a wonderful actress, but nobody was giving her an Oscar for uh, Halloween. You know, I mean, I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre as much as the next person, but everybody's everybody's pulling this stuff together by the seat of their pants, and it's the strength of the ideas I think is what makes those movies fly, and that's what you really see here. When we you guys mentioned Land of the Dead a little bit, and what I love about it and what I I just I wonder if maybe it's time to sort of dive into this is when I saw Land of the Dead what I realized was by this time by the time I think 2005 I think is when he made this that Romero was more sympathetic toward his zombies than he was toward the people that the climax of that movie is the zombies raiding the, the Crystal City and we're rooting for the zombies because the zombies, and you look at them, the zombies are gas station attendants. The zombies are very blue collar and this, you know, I mean, th- this would have been a, 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 you know, a communist film in 1968 if it had been about the, the proletariat rebelling against the bourgeoisie. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I think yeah. that, that what Romero really hit upon Less so in Night of the Living Dead, but moving forward was that zombies were a, a, a blank slate upon which you could cast important social ideas um, and that you could use them to talk about consumerism. You could use them to talk about militarism. You could use them to talk about classism. 
um, and that he decided he was going to use them to do that. And for all the imitators and for all the, the various zombie films, including my own, which never got made, you know, people, that was what made them great in a way and, and sort of set them apart and makes them pieces of their, pieces of their, of their time, you know, uh, uh, snapshots of the time in which they were made that much as I love Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead remake, it will never be, um, you know. That, and that's so it's to me the the zombies are the star of the show and he realized that and that's where he put um that's really where he put his mind to work was in making those things work well they yeah, can represent I, whatever you want them to represent exactly. yeah exactly. exactly i mean they are somewhat of a, a blank slate of social upheaval and of you know they can represent like night of living dead toys with the idea you know, that we were always zombie. I mean, I'm sorry, Dawn of the Dead toys with the idea that we were always zombies, that, you know, there's something about shopping and just being a member of the herd, like the herd of zombies can represent passivity. But these films, and I think that Land of the Dead definitely taps into this, they can also just represent sort of the body politic rising up and, you know, pulling the rich out of their ivory towers. And I, I think that there's also a very you know, uh, rebellious, uh, you know, the inevitability that the masses will, will not be satisfied with opiates forever. I think that that's mm-hmm. something else that he explores. Well, I mean, see, I, I think here's the true uh, core of the zombie that Romero created is its power lies in, in, in its number. Uh, in any other classic monster, it's I am legend, basically. There's one of them or maybe two, uh, it's got incredible powers. It lives in some remote place. You know, there's some you know, extreme mythology to it. You know, there's a special way to get rid of it, you know, uh, and with this, uh, you know, and, and if you encounter ways, like it'll pounce on you in a swamp, you know, it'll get like one or two people. The zombie doesn't just threaten you. It threatens society as a whole. Uh, the first time that we see, Romero, uh, you know, a film with this monster, uh, society is flying apart, and and only the rednecks survive. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah, 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 the, the, I, the it, it threatens not just a bite on your neck or biting you and give you a curse or you know what have you or dragging you under the water. Uh, this is a thing that will take down your entire civilization. And I, I think that, you know, that, that's, that's kind of the core of, uh, I, I mean, if you do it a contained way, then you have the supernatural siege movie. And if you make it larger, uh, then you have, you know, World War Z or um, uh, I'm talking about the book specifically or Walking Dead or The Strain. Um, you know, these films where, you know, it's not going to just kill you. It's going to kill your entire civilization. Yeah, that's right. It, it, it... Dis- disintegrates the very foundation of the system that would be needed to to fight back, you know. And I think mm-hmm. that the Dawn of the Dead remake, you know, it honestly is a movie that I love, and I think it captures that vibe so well. I mean, those early scenes of the hospital and this amazing 360 shot of this, you know, bucolic uh, subdivision of McMansions with all this chaos. You know, it's a stand-in for anything, an earthquake, a, uh invasion, a riot, right. a, you know, like, right. this just, zombies represent 
symbolically the destruction of society. And I think that that's why, you know, in 2017, if we were to watch Land of the Dead, I think we would have, you know, a totally different reading on it, much the way that, like, They Live is a film that different, Mm -hmm. you know, you could watch it in one year and you're like, oh, well, that's so quaint. Then you could watch it, you know, two, three, five years later and be like, holy shit, this is so prescient, you know? And then you could, you know, another five years go by and you're like, oh, now it's quaint again. You know, well, zombies seem to maintain a cultural relevance because of the fears that they represent not going anywhere. And you could certainly even make an argument that what happened with Donald Trump being elected, you know, represents this in some way. And that, like, you know, these masses of of hungry, you know, disenfranchised, angry people rose up and changed the course of history you know, irrationally, but, mm-hmm. you know, because of their need, because of their hunger. Go back and watch Land of the Dead and look at the costume design on the zombies. Mm-hmm. They are two a number in blue-collar jobs. It's a, it's a butcher. It's a, you know, I mean, Big Daddy is a gas station attendant. Yep. Um, the, the zombies are just a blatant representation of exactly what you're talking about, John, that it would, they are the poor, the blue collar people who are being screwed out of things by the rich. And it's a movie about them taking their revenge on them. Uh, I agree. It's if you watch it now that you would say, this is a prescient metaphor for exactly what happened. I think that, you know, it occurred to me that there, there's only one other monster that, that strikes at society as a whole. And that's, uh, the alien, uh, alien invasion movies before that. And, uh, and in a certain way, Night of the Living Dead is an alien invasion movie because it comes, you know, it's caused by a radiation from a crashed satellite. You know, so I, I think that, you know, there, there's a little bit of a, a backdrop to that. But I, I mean, again, it's it's the other has come to destroy everything. So I, I guess I mean, at that time you could you could talk about communism, the Red Scares. You know, you could talk about, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the social upheaval of the time. You know, I, I, I obviously wasn't around, but, you know, my parents would say that, you know, and at that time in the 60s, like you really didn't know what was going to happen the next day. It really felt like for, you know, for, for a minute, you know, that we could, this whole thing could fly apart, that it could become uh, a civil war, a revolution, uh, you know, social, you know, you know, insanity. I mean, it was really in the air at the time. Like, if you wanted and, to write uh, a clickbaity article about, like, the 12 most terrifying years in the history of uh, America, you know, yeah. like that era yeah. would be probably number one, right? I mean, Cuban Missile Crisis would be, well, uh, would be up there, but... I, 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 I I think I, I think the Civil War would 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 you know laugh at it a little bit, but uh yeah it's like <laughs> I, I mean it really it really it really felt like you know you know that that was in the air I at least according I mean, to my I, parents. Yeah, 1967, 1968. I mean where where people leaders were being assassinated left and right, you know, and yeah, just, yeah. there was so much fear of 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 chaos and instability and loss of hope and uh, yeah it was definitely. But again, we we have felt that we can relate to that on some level multiple times. Nine eleven, two thousand eight. Now you know, like there's just various degrees of uh, of 
fear. And again, that's why Romero will always be a guy that doesn't need a first name. You know, you just drop Romero and it, it speaks volumes. So uh, let's, let's talk, you know, a little bit about other films <laughs> that, that he did. Um, you know, how, how does, does anyone have any thoughts on uh, how Dawn of the Dead was distinct from uh, Night of the Living Dead in, in, in any way that we haven't covered already for you or just, you know, uh, in a larger sense? The, really, the introduction of the zombies, as you said, is, as sort of a blank slate. And I, I mean, again, what, what strikes me over the course of his zombie films, and again, everything sort of detours. I, I feel like Diary of the Dead just belongs and in, in, in Survival of the Dead belong to their own separate chapter. It's like when Michael Jordan came back and played for the Wizards. Like, we'll just <laughs> we'll put that aside and, and sort of not talk about that. But everything up to Land of the Dead... Again, what I'm what I'm struck by and what makes him so significant to me among I mean, for a variety of reasons, but that starting with Dawn of the Dead, where you, you start to use the zombies as a metaphor for us, but still in a in a in a negative, like a satirical way, right? Like it's still a criticism of us. And then I think when you get to Day of the Dead, uh, and you have Bob and this idea that like can we give humanity back to the zombies, the zombie, you know, the, the military become the bad guys. And so, with the, the, you know, the, the, that struggle between the science and, and the military and, and there, there's, there's lots of sort of social issues going on in there. And I feel like everything gets a little muddy about who the good guys are. And by the time you get to Land of the Dead, I just, I feel when I watch that film, and I've seen it three or four times, I feel like Romero's sympathies have gone from being with, the people trapped in the mall, you know, the the soldiers and everybody else in Dawn of the Dead. Um, by the time you get to Land of the Dead, I feel like Romero's sympathies are with the zombies. Well, Vic, I would and argue, that's, I would that's argue that it is. But I mean, I think that like you could say that there's a percentage in each of these films of shots or moments that sympathize with the dead. And I would say in Night of the Living Dead, like then maybe there's like, you know, a few shots where you're sort of like, oh, that zombie is pathetic. And, and, you know, like you can kind of see the echo of its humanity. And, but then in Dawn of the Dead, there's actually quite a few, you know, where Mm -hmm. moments where you're like watching a zombie doing something repetitive and they have like a childlike innocence to them, even in Dawn of the Dead. And I, yeah, I think that it becomes more and more purposeful as he moves along. If, if there's a through line between night and dawn, it's uh, yeah, there, there's a wry sense of dark humor that that runs between them. Uh, you know, one of my favorite lines in you know all these films is uh, <laughs> they were talking, they were interviewing the cop, and he's just like, yeah, they're uh, they're all messed up. Yeah. Oh, they're dead. They're they're all messed up. I would say that yeah. he would always say that we are the bad guy. Like he's many of his interviews have have, have suggested that that. We know we are the problem at the end of the day. Well, look at look at the end of Night of the Living Dead, man. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, uh, that that ending blew my young yes. mind in half and stomped on it. We and should, especially we should the, mention that. <laughs> and especially to uh, to give us that that terribly uh, ironic and also shocking ending. Um, and on top of it, also to follow it up with. Uh, a bunch of stills, uh, yeah, and again we're going back to um, you know kind of a grounded verite element, you know, you know stills that we, we would see out of like someone's 
you know, a camera or, uh, you know, uh, you know, in a newspaper, you know, later. Uh, but and that, not even like newspaper quality, like they're very smeary, you know, amateur kind of things. Um, they're really stripped down and, uh, you know, in a way that, you know, I don't think I've seen anything else like that except for an, um, uh, 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 Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, that, with that the Polaroids. Yeah. Yeah. I love that open. But the point that you're making is the capper to what I said at the start uh, when we were talking mm-hmm. about Night of the Living Dead and how each person meets a fate that, that is, you know, somehow, uh, you know, often they're arbitrary in the way that death truly is in life. Mm-hmm. But there's yeah. such a the cruel irony of these deaths and like the film ending that way, like it, it just it's such a gut punch to any sense of idealism or even traditional narrative, you know, the idea that heroes win and, you know, if you die, you're sacrificing yourself to some, you know, for some great purpose. And for him to die in that way, like it's as as ballsy and sort of, I wouldn't say meta, but just deconstructive of, of drama as anything I had seen up to that point. And it just, like the yeah. whole film shook me to the, foundations and you know again it's not about visceral oh well somebody's eye got pulled out or something like that and i can't believe they showed that all like zombie fulci zombie you know but Mm -hmm. it was more like this movie exists to fuck with me on a level that is you know it it, is much more disturbing because yeah what would for him to die that way is just it, it flies in the face of everything that we associate with drama you know, like it, it, it's, and yet it's not, it's not cheap. It's not, you know, it, it, it makes perfect sense that it could happen. Like logically in the situation, it's very realistic that that would happen. And yeah. that only makes it even more horrible. Yeah. Like, Cause I, and none of these choices feel cheap. They're, no. they're, there's uh, yeah, I, I, they're, they're, you know, certainly surprising, but they're still, you know, grounded in, in the world that's been created. Oh, I mean, we have to, we've, oh, go ahead. And, Hey, I mean, we've established the vigilante squads. We've established that you know they're 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 out there and uh, they're doing their thing. And I also you know, uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I you know what are the film? I mean, we're programmed that you know this guy who um, you know Ben who like seemingly does everything right and he's brave and he fights hard and he's smart and uh, you know he goes through this hellish nightmare existence and you know makes it out by the skin of his teeth. And we're like, and he makes it to dawn. You know, the sun comes up. He's like, hooray. Rescue is here. Like, yeah. And his rescuers shoot him in the fucking head. And and even then, they, they aren't like, hey, let's go kill that living guy. They're like, I, they only see, they're, they're doing a sweep and they see a bunch of zombies around a house and they see a head pop up and that's it. So it's like, I, and even then, it's it's just a terrible fuck up. Instead yeah, and of, I, I love that even though tack. you can read it from a tremendously racial uh, of perspective, of, of like course, the of film course. doesn't make it that easy. You know, mm-hmm. like the film doesn't explicitly or implicitly suggest, oh, he's black, let's kill him. You know, mm-hmm. like it's it's just more again like this deeply under the surface symbolism. But I, I want to say that we can't even talk about that without juxtaposing it to the end of Dawn of the Dead where our, our black protagonist has a much more hopeful uh, ending, even though it's very like, well, we got a tank of gas and we don't know where the fuck we're going, but hey, we're alive right now. 
Um, let's talk do about you, that. Do you, do, you, do you think that he was uh, having a convert? You know, Romero's thought may have been that the audience is, you know, because they have seen Knight, that they're expecting him to put an end to this character. And, uh, you know, it's actually like kind of a, you know, a reverse of his own pattern to give him, you know, not only a, a win at the end, but also like kind of the, you know, heroic music swells up. You know, uh, he battles against the odds. He plows his way through the through the crowd of zombies, makes it at the last second. You know, this very, you know, soaring action movie kind of a thing. And yeah, it's even though they, they, have, they only have a tank of gas, they don't know where they're going. It's still like, you know, they're such capable people that you, you know, you expect that they're going to be OK. I feel like Night of Living Dead is more of a full punch in the face of of the viewer. You know, like there's no way to walk out of Night of the Living Dead with any hope or optimism. And he clearly decided that Dawn would, you know, it's not a more traditional action film, even though it is on some level. There's so many disturbing things in Dawn of the Dead and, you know, ambiguous and bleak. And, you know, you could say that it's overall, it's just as dark as night. But, But Dawn as the title should indicate, um, and it ends in Dawn, uh, definitely leaves you on another note. It leaves you on a very different note than the first movie. And yeah, I, 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 I've seen Night of the Living Dead many times, and uh, it's, the best, it's been a little while, but I, I, it's the best of my recollection. I don't think that there are any biker pie fights in <laughs> Night. <laughs> oh, you got to watch the director's cut. Where, whereas in Dawn... Uh, I would say that box is checked. So, do you like Dawn of the Dead more than Night of the Living Dead, and if so, why? Uh, starting with you, Vic. I mean, my actual reaction is is no. Um, and that's a, and that's a, I mean, that's a, I feel like that's probably a weird thing to say. And you probably don't if you asked if you polled horror fans the world over, you might not get that reaction. I mean, Dawn of the Dead is a, is a great and enormously influential movie. And again, it's like I said, I think you you get more sort of pointed uh, commentary from Romero in it. There's a lot of things about it that uh, that I think set it apart. I'm honest to goodness, I, I I went through periods in my life where I would just read criticism of you know, the New York Times. I remember when they made their uh, the, their back catalog of movie reviews available to anybody and I just realized that I could just search for movie reviews. Janet Maslin of the New York Times walked out of Dawn of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Uh which and I like I was mortified. Like you how could anybody leave this movie? Like one of the most influential horror films uh of the century. Uh and she was like, Yeah, it's not my thing. You know, lady, just sit the fuck down. Anyways. Um <laughs> But, um, By the way, I, I, I'm a, a movie nerd going way back, and I, I'm sorry, I can't say that a Janet Maslin review ever did anything for me. Sorry. Yeah, I, I, I will say that um, I am deeply pleased by this accident of fate that I grew up in the time of, of Ebert and, yes. uh, and, and, and Siskel to a... A somewhat smaller degree, but we can't talk about Romero without mentioning Ebert. So thank you. Yeah, I I, I, just just the fact that um, you know, and as a whole, uh, Roger Ebert would, uh, and I didn't always agree with him, but I and he would give a fair shake to good films in any genre. 
you know, I just I, I very much remember the three and a half stars they gave to Evil Dead too, you know, and uh, I that he but, would but champ- to the point that he gave Dawn four. Yeah, and yeah, that you would champion that. It's like, you know, whereas, you know, uh, his somewhat more tender-hearted colleagues would, you know, poo-poo things because, you know, uh, it's not a fucking Ingmar Bergman film. Yeah, um, it felt like, you know, it, it's about balls on some level. It, you know, it was about being, do I want to give a full-throated endorsement to a film like this? You know, bet hedging and things like like that. Like some some kind of calculus that made you conservative about attaching your name to a review like that. And fucking Roger Ebert was like, Dawn of the Dead is a masterpiece. Yeah, I mean, you know, God forbid you get snickered at, you know, uh, over your white wine and canaps, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, because I, you know, a film is a film is a film, you know, and in whatever genre it may be, if it's good, it's good. And, uh, you know, Eber was very much a guy who was just like, I mean, if this movie has something to say, you know, then I'll give it a fair shake. And, and I think that you should watch it. I think this is a good movie, you know, and, um, you know, the, the dawns of the dead of the world are, you know, they're, they're like metal, man. It's like, I, and everyone hates it when it first comes out, but you know, 30 years later ones, you know, a lot of people were like, this is classic music. And you know, there's a proportion of people who are like, I, I, yes, I know. One of, <laughs> one of my favorite, like, I think maybe top five viewing experiences of my life was watching Dawn of the Dead for the first time because I watched it with my mother. <laughs> and my mom took me to movies like throughout the 80s. It was like $3, $2 even early in the 80s. You know, it was nothing. We would go to movies literally once a week. So and I, and she didn't care about like you know R rating or something. I saw so many films with my mom and my sister that you know were very non-kitty type movies throughout my whole childhood. And because of Roger Ebert, she watched Dawn of the Dead with me on home video and we were both blown away by it. Like in that first viewing, and we talked about it multiple, you know, conversations right after. And I had I'd seen uh, Night already separately, but um, like I just remember the fact that Ebert gave that seal of approval, made my mom okay with it, and I remember connecting with my mom on this movie and how great it was, and it meant something to me that both Roger Ebert and my mom love this movie. And I'm not saying I needed their approval, but it just mm-hmm. was like it, it it filled me with like just so much more faith that that maybe this was the right path for me to follow because there was true brilliance and genius here. And, you know, maybe it's all right if that's what you want to spend your life doing it's very easy to jump up and down on the horror genre because you know for a very long period of time it was considered you know garbage for teenagers you know uh or you know and you know thanks to guys like romero you know there there were those examples that you could always point to and go no this is this is cinema this is cinema i mean you know look past the more visceral elements or actually don't include the visceral elements. And, you know, because he's saying something with that. There's and, nothing gratuitous uh, in Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. I, I, I you know, I, I, it's, it's definitely a extraordinarily gory film. Uh, and, you know, thank God that we still have Tom Savini amongst us. Uh, but, 
you know, the idea that, uh, you know, that any of these are anything less than a color in the painting, you know, um, if anything, you know, a little bit earlier, we were talking about the idea that, you know, Romero had his kind of Jordan and the Wizards uh, chapter. Right. I, I, I think that um, he was never super subtle. I, I, about as subtle as he ever got was Night of the Living Dead. Um, if he was shifting into a political direction, uh, he, you know, he lost his scalpel a long time ago. I mean, even Dawn is very, you know, his character is, uh, what do you, what do you think they are? They're us, you know, really, really super, super blunts, you know, get it. Do you get it? Get it now. And, um, for a while he was able to be blunt in such a way that still came across as, as artistic, and uh, it wasn't until Diary that it almost became self-parody. Um, you know, he even had, like, characters who were, like, a, you know, a guy was a director, and, like, they were making fun of him for, you know, I, I only make horror movies about social commentary, and da 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 And it's like, oh, dude, are you, what? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, like, self-awareness can be crippling. And I yeah, think I, that he had too many years to contemplate some of these things. And yeah. land, land, uh, I, you know, land, I, you know, like I said, I would call that a solid double, but even then it's like, you know, uh, here are the blue color zombies and, uh, you know, we distract them with fireworks in the sky, uh, and they all stare up and open mouths while we steal all their stuff so we can take it to a literal ivory tower, you know, uh, that's populated by these rich people. And it's like, how did, you know, it's, you know, I don't want to say sophomoric, but it's it's basically it's symbolism for for beginners. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely the balance that he always struck early on was between that sort of verite documentary, just people living, and mm-hmm. a few really kind of more bluntly, not pedantic, but you know, thematically obvious types of statements or moments or beats. And yeah, that balance gradually goes. And you know, he only directed twenty movies, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> only quote it. unquote. But uh, I, well, I still though, it's like I, I, I you know, just to touch on Day very quickly. Uh, you know, Day actually, I, I came to it um, at the wrong time in my life. Uh, you know, we're talking about night coming at the right time. Day, uh, I had been geared up by you know uh, the first two films to expect you know, oh my god, this is gonna be awesome. And to have like two thirds of the movie ha- being like these people like hang around in this bunker and and yell at each other and smoke weed was like, ah, dude, it, it was. Uh, I I didn't really like it the first time I saw it. I, I thought it was weak tea, uh, and it, it was disappointing until, to me too. Yeah, and um, you know, uh, I I've, I've since de- I've since definitely come around to it. Uh, it is an excellent film, yeah. uh, but you just have to. Yeah, you know, I mean, at that time I was probably like, you know. 12 or 13 and uh, i was just like oh dude it's got these zombies gotta rip your fucking head off and even though it, it does pay that off and like dribs or drabs you know it wasn't it wasn't nearly enough for me like i, that I would say whatever was, you love about that film pacing is probably not at the top of the list <laughs> no no I, I, it's like that that opening sequence with uh you know, uh, uh, wonderful little details like the alligator in the street, and uh, you know. Well, yeah, the, you're so on board in that sequence. Million dollars getting blown around, yeah. and you're just like, "Oh my god, this is gonna be the best movie ever!" And then we hang around in this fucking bunker, and it's just like, "Oh, dude, nope." And uh, I, I, and again, I've, I've since come around to it. 
I now enjoy Day of the Dead for what it is. And um, it has its own strengths and charms. But, um, yeah, it took me a little while on that one. Real quick, I think that I, I, I can't – we're talking about Verite. I can't go without saying that the crazies blew me away as a kid because it, it's really ramping up the almost found footage kind of vibe. And it reminds me of actually a couple of David Cronenberg films from that same era. But I, I, I found the crazies tremendously disturbing as a kid. Um, like I, I would love to comment on it more, uh, specifically, but I haven't seen it in a while and we don't really have time, but like the crazies always stuck with me as, you know, just sort of, he doubles down on a lot of the unsettling elements of Night of Living Dead in that film. And I think it spawned a pretty solid remake actually with Timothy Oliphant. I would say that the cra- the Crazies remake is probably one of the best examples of of a good remake. Uh, I you know the irony, of course, is another one of the other best ones is the remake of Dawn of the Dead. Uh, it yep. seems that Rom- Romero makes for good remakes <laughs> because uh, yeah, the Crazies was fantastic. I thought, um, and uh, in some cases, I would say stronger because uh, after. I watched the remake of the crazies. I went back and rewatched the original and, um, you know, kind of what I was touching on, I, there, there are some really ham fisted elements to that. And, uh, some of the more stripped down, you know, so some more low rent elements, uh, instead of seeming like scrappy underdog filmmaking, felt more like, dude, why this is really student film? Why, why, why are we still here? You know? Um, I mean, there, there's elements with, um, you know, the, the fat, loud guy who was, who was kind of the, the, the obnoxious expert in Dawn of the Dead. You remember that guy? Yes. And yes. he plays like a doctor. And, um, man, he just gets these monologues that are over the top. And, like, he's enjoyable, you know, because he's a big personality. But, I mean, dude, it's like, you know, you're just locking the camera down. And the, there's, there's moments where it's like... You know, you might as well flash on the screen. This is Kent State. You know, stuff like that. And um, I can't get granular with that movie, but I mean, the editing is there, and the idea of people sort of bleakly ironic, purposeful yet random deaths, and how unsettling Mm -hmm. all of that is, like the fate of of characters. I think he was very much continuing where he left off with Night of the well, Dead, but yeah, I mean, the lightning in the bottle quality is not there. Like, it's not yeah. a, a, a classic film the way N-O-T-L-D is. Well, I, I did like uh, The Crazies enough to blatantly uh, rip, uh, I'm sorry, be deeply influenced by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're developing a, a certain film called Killer Party. Um, you know, that, that was yeah. kind of, it was, you know, Killer Party is basically The Crazies meets... Um, Right at your door, which is a you know independent you know kind of horror thriller that came out in the middle aughts. Um, but I mean, those were kind of the two like, I like starting right at your door. Yeah, I I love that film, and um, those were kind of the two starting points for for Killer Party, and um, mostly the crazies. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, absolutely, a- absolutely, and I think that the you know the film does uh, capitalize effectively on some yeah. of those, some of those beats. And that's part of, yeah, definitely what works uh, very well about Killer Party. Uh, Vic, are you still awake? I am. I was just going to say, I, gentlemen, uh, uh, I believe the three of us actually sat down and, and spent 
quite the evening going over and analyzing creep show uh at some point too just as we uh, as we let's, reminisce let's talk about it yeah yeah, yeah. I, I, I and if we're going to talk about the exact opposite of verite yeah. filmmaking but i i you know, so wait we're not going to do a half an hour on night riders yeah <laughs> i i here, here, here's the brilliance of george romero though is when he goes verite it's groundbreaking in the genre and then he again like reinvents the giant. No one had made a movie like Creepshow before, or in some some ways since. You know, I, I there there are some films that kind of you know touch on the comic book elements of it. But and he definitely you know was that guy to and he made a film that hadn't existed before, and oh, yeah. in many ways still does. I absolutely uh, love it. I absolutely love it. And I I just want to say I wish we could really get into Martin, and I feel horrible. But I've only seen it once, and I probably was 14. So, like, if I had mm-hmm. known he was going to die and we were going to do this podcast, I probably mm-hmm. that would have been the first movie that I revisited because many people, and I believe probably rightly so, because it, it definitely made an impact on me, say that that's, you know, top tier uh, in yeah, his filmography. I, there, there's a sequence in Martin that, that has always stuck with me, and that's when he attacks. Yeah. When he att- we attacks that couple in the house. Yeah, because it, it's. I, I you want to talk about grounded. You want to talk about verite. Yep. I mean, the performances are so naturalistic um, that it, it it very. I mean, what what makes it so incredibly creepy, unsettling sequence is it's like Henry it, it, Portrait it, of a Serial Killer. Is yeah, it, it, it's like this is exactly how this kind of thing would play out in real life. You know, where it's like, hey, the phone doesn't work. Did you did you hear that outside? Is there a guy out there? You know, it's like, and he's just, you know, he's not, uh, he's not a super powered guy. He's just this skinny creep with a razor blade. You know, and it's it's dude. I mean, that sequence really fucking flipped my lid, man. Um, to to the point that like I I it's been a couple of decades since I've seen it, but I that sequence has always hung with me, and I've I've reached to it for for influence because uh, it's, it's uh, visceral and naturalistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, if you tell the truth, you you never go too far off the mark. You yeah, know? like going very very primal, very stripped down, can be tremendously effective in the, in the horror genre. Where, you know, you just like, it's clumsy, it's awkward, it's real time, it's not balletic. There, there's nothing, there's no visual flourishes to it. It's just this, like, struggle of, of biological beings to either expire or, you know, not expire, to kill or not be killed. And, and that, that is always dramatic. It, and, and the more you gloss it up, it becomes less impactful, actually. Yeah. That's why yeah. you can have desperate housewives or, you know, I know that's reaching back, but, you know, well, oh, yeah. well, somebody's <laughs> somebody's murdering somebody, but it just feels like it's just a narrative turn. There's no yeah. there's no impact to it at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to, to draw a completely opposite um, comparison. So Creepshow, I, I think we do need to touch on. I, this is one of my favorite Romero films by far. I, I find it magical. I, I just I, I think that the movie has such a cohesive tone, and yet it takes you to so many different places narratively that I absolutely love it. Like each story is so distinct from the others, and what they share is a propulsiveness 
and a wit. Like, there is a wonderful dark humor to this film that, you know, is EC Comics for sure. Um, but I think that Romero brings... He, he brings his wonderful cynicism to this film. And Stephen King, of course. Um, you know, like, it's a wonderful marriage of, of three very, very influential veins of horror. And I, I think it, it works almost flawlessly. Yeah, it, you know, it's very hard to get to have like a, a good super group, you know. Yeah, but exactly. It, this is this is one, yeah, because what makes people brilliant people brilliant is uh, you know a, a unity of vision, and it's very difficult to you know it's very easy to kind of go, oh well, if you know you know X, you know Apple and Orange got together, they could go on an adventure, and it's just like well, you know, uh, creatively speaking, you know they usually cancel each other out, or else you, you kind of get the weak version of both of them kind of vainly vaguely mixing together. I mean, people you know, not stepping like, on each other's toes, or right, yeah. You know, but this is I mean, this is you know all three cannons are going off loud and clear. It's clearly King. It's clearly Romero. It's clearly the you know easy comic you know milieu. Um, I mean, dude, I mean, it's, it, I, I mean, again, a, a movie that I mean, there have been two sequels. Uh, but I mean, it's never it, it's it's like Ghostbusters. It's a movie that it's lightning in a bottle. It's a movie that's never been done before or since. Exactly. Completely reintroducing the idea of the uh, anthology film. Um, I mean, I know he did this in the next one. He also wrote the Tales from the Dark Side movie. It is such a a unique beast, especially compared to the rest of Romero's work. And just joyfully, gleefully fun to watch in an utterly horrifying way. Tales from the Dark Side was very important to me as a kid. You know, like there weren't a lot of shows like that. I look forward to it so much. I mean, certain episodes blew me the Wait, fuck away. I'm sorry, John, before you get too far yeah. down there, I should be clear. I, I believe you worked on Tales from the Dark Side, the movie? No, 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 sir. Oh. Did he create the did he, did he create the show? Yes. yes I mean, yeah, Richard Rubenstein. in life, gentlemen. We need to wrap this up. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, him, Savini, Rip, Richard Rubin, Rubenstein, they were all, like, uh, very, you know, critical to that show and obviously a yeah. lot of writers, you know, participated over the years uh, and they were more hands off as it went along. But uh, Tales from the Dark Side, man, that, that's a fucking Romero baby. Yeah. I, 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 that he worked on uh, uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to talk about anthology horror, we're talking about Mr. <laughs> Rogers' Neighborhood, man. I wanted, like, wanted to get something, I wanted to get something right again before yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fan of Fred Rogers, like you know, for what it's yeah. for what it's worth. But yeah, uh, I, let's, yeah, creep show, like real quick. I mean, what's your favorite segment of of that film? Starting with you, Mike. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be the spoiler and just say Billy right out loud. Uh, is is that the crate? Is that what it's called? The crate. The crate. The crate, uh, the crate is. God, I, I I love that monster in there, and uh, I, I, I you know the funny thing about Creepshow is uh, because it's based on a comic, it could be really obvious and really over the top, and in a way that is unacceptable in the crazies, but is totally a okay in Creepshow. So it's yep. like she's so consistently horrible, I and mean, she she's uh, you know shrieking shrew of a creature, Adrian Barbo. Uh, the Barbobot, and um, <laughs> that's and, a uh, Z Lab reference for everybody out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Yeah, but uh, I, I mean, I love the crate. I, I, it's such. I, I mean, he's such a pathetic creature. Um, Hal Holbrook and that Henry film. Northrup. Yeah, that's. Right. Oh, yes. <laughs> I love it, and, and I, I love the when the creature. I, I, I there's also um, the idea that was founded in an Arctic expedition in like the 20s and or or even earlier, and then dragged back. And thrown under the stairs in a university. I would say that even though the the monster doesn't have any tentacles, it's a deeply Lovecraftian setup. Oh yes, oh yes, absolutely. I I think for me, my favorite is something to tide you over. Oh, dude, yeah. And it has it has a lot to do with you know sort of Romero's general aesthetic and sensibility up to this point. Like it's, mm-hmm. but it, it's even like a little more. Uh, it, it, I think the fact that it has that tongue and cheekness that that this film has even elevates it. But it's it's so tremendously bleak, so tremendously again characters dying in ways that are completely believable, and yet like the multiplier effect of horribleness when you just think about what what their end is and how they came to meet this. Mm-hmm. Like, it's so disturbing. I mean, like, to be buried on a beach and watch the person you love most in the world die on a screen in front of you. Like, yeah. I just, I, the, there's something about, like, many, many people have learned, oh, well, like, that's a torturous, you know, torture porn kind of death. But I think there's something more powerful to, like, the circumstances of your life are what make make this end so you know tragic traumatic you know poignant whatever it is and Romero has always found a way to make the circumstances of people's lives make their cinematic deaths so much more uh, powerful and I'm not saying yeah. you know he necessarily wrote this you know episode but he was certainly you know drawn to this and and can make the most of it and I just, I found that, that one so fucking dark, you know? And mm-hmm. I, I also want to say that one thing about Creepshow that I, I'm disappointed by is that I think that the last one, the Ups and Pratt, they're creeping up on you. I think that's mm-hmm. the weakest one. And oh, I, yeah. Easily, I, by yeah, far. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and you end with that. Yeah, I, I, I think yeah, that, that's just kind of a coda, I, I think, uh, because it's also the shortest one, mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of I, I can't think of any other, you know, film that that makes such wonderful use of cockroaches for one thing. But on the other hand, uh, yeah, I, I, if we're going to talk about like just blunt messaging, it's you know, Romero really doesn't like it when old men live in ivory towers. You know, right? Exactly. He, We've talked he, about that all night. Yeah, yeah, he, he boy does that get his goat. You know, he's going to dump cockroaches on them or Yeah, you know, I mean the yeah. idea like as much as like watching Sheldon Adelson be devoured by cockroaches might, you know, appeal to me on mm-hmm. some level. Um sure. it's like well, you know, who am I dramatically who am I rooting for? You know, like what am I Okay, I I can take some pleasure in watching, you know, this bastard be brought down but it's like a it's a joyless exercise 
Yeah, I, I mean, it's very similar to a lot of episodes in uh, Tales of the Dark Side. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, if they're saying a through line between those two, it's, I mean, it's, I, I mean, did Tales from the Dark Side come after Creepshow? Um, yeah, yes. yeah. I, I think in all likelihood he, he dug Creepshow enough that he was able to, you know, Hey Wolf, we had an entire TV show with this kind of thing because you know a lot of these kind of EC Comics type stories are like you know it introduces some mean person who you know the storytelling tells us that we we're not supposed to like and then something awful happens to them you know it, it's very very it's it's almost childish you know he's a mean old man so he gets eaten by roaches you know it's like all right <laughs> it's, like, it's funny that he is so sheldon adelson though like it, it is crazy how like you can see the relevance like none of this feels like dated on on some thematic level yeah. you know yeah. Uh, like, like yeah Bill Billy's a mean lady, so she gets eaten by a weird gorilla guy. Uh, well, that yeah, one that he, one's a little more a uh, little more dated, but I love I do love that one. I mean, I think that is the, my second favorite. But part yeah. of it is because of the sort of whimsical tone when he takes control of this and starts mm-hmm. playing it out, and his voiceover walks us through what he did. Like, I think there's such a kinetic lovely energy to when he when he talks about you know how he uh the steps that he took when he's confessing to his friend that i just i i I find that like just such a joy and i feel the release that he experiences like the Mm -hmm. the sort of the empowerment like again i can't relate to sheldon adelson slash you know this this character that E.G. Marshall plays, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. like we can all somewhat relate to uh, the Hal Holbrook character. On, on well, you know, I, yeah, I, 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 it also bespeaks like kind of a, an older style of horror short story that's like again, like almost like Doyle-ish or or Lovecraftian in a way in which like you know this kind of you know Tweedy smart guy you know is going to sit around in a drawing room and tell his chess partner this. Uh, you know this this harrowing tale of of murder and violence and revenge and the supernatural. You know it's almost like Ambrose Pierce in a way. It is. Uh, certainly, yeah, certainly so, Lovecraftian. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, so I, I, yeah, and I, I think that that jangles with um you know the setup of you know the bright bold colors and everything else. And uh, when I shot um. Uh, what's it called? Fade to Black. Uh, I, I got posted on Ain't It Cool, and uh, someone uh, compared it, it to Creepshow because I put like a lot of primary colors in there, and uh, that was purposeful, you know. I and again, I'm reaching the Romero. I and he's one of the first influences that I level on the shelf that I go to. Well, let's uh, let's start to wrap this up. Um, what else haven't we talked about that you guys feel is important to touch on? Monkey shines. Oh God, really? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Full disclosure: this is another one that I saw in the theater mm-hmm. and appreciated quite a bit, but have never seen again. Really? Yeah. Uh, I've seen it maybe three or four times, but it, it has been a while. Um, I really thoroughly enjoyed Monkey Shine, so I thought it was great. Uh, v- Vicky had a, a reaction there. Do you, do you not like that film, or are you just getting tired? Mon- Monkey Shines is my my first cinematic exposure to Cunnilingus. 
That's that's really. <laughs> Whoa! I gotta see this. Everything again. I remember about it was like, "Mom, how is that quadriplegic guy going to have sex with that?" Whoa! Oh my god, that is hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, I'm so just funny. looking at the cast of this film. I have no idea that these people were in it. <laughs> yeah. Janine well, I... Turner, Stanley Tucci. Uh, Steven Root, like, obviously nobody knew who the fuck they were when, when the movie came out. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. afterward. I mean, very, very, very short list of, um, films in which our, our protagonist is quadriplegic. And I thought that, you know, uh, the acting was, was very strong and, and definitely puts us on the side of that character, you know, in a very deep way i thought it was uh, very cool in the vein of misery and it was around the same time was it not yeah yeah and uh um, the following year yeah it, and it's, I, it's like misery if kathy bates was played by boo the monkey and i'm not yeah. the monkey's name is boo i i and what was the monkey's name grace i think ella. um ella the character of ella that's right that's right that's right um, by the way this is the Stephen remember from watching it Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this movie made an impression on me. It just mm-hmm. it simply wasn't a, it simply wasn't a good one. I mean, uh, I, I I was I, I liked Ella as an antagonist. Uh, she reminds me of Gage and Pet Cemetery. The idea that our you know far more than Chucky. You know, the idea that our 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 murderous antagonist is this very small and weak creature. You know. Um, you know, she's on par with a two-year-old child, but, you know, I mean, if she's still, I, I, I think it still involves, like, scalpels and needles and stuff like that. Um, but I, I, I thought it was very, you know, I, I, it's primarily a psychological horror movie. Uh, I, again, there's, there's not a whole lot of, you know, characters of this nature uh, in horror. Uh, the, only, the only other guy who comes to mind is the dude in a wheelchair in Friday the 13th Part 2. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, as our millions of listeners will recall, when I drunkenly discoursed on on that film back when we were doing it's always Friday the 13th, like I and he was one of my favorite guys, and then that whole I was immediately sympathetic and a hundred percent behind that character. Um, yeah, I can compare him to say Franklin in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This unctuous dude who's just like, yeah, it's not the disability that makes someone; it's the person who's dealing with the disability. You know, I I want to say that like we could do a season a la uh, "It's Always Friday" about Romero, and I think that is a a big compliment. Like, you know, there are even though he only directed twenty films, like I I think that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the, for for a man of his age and and the the length of his career, I think that's a little sure. bit surprising. But like you know, that is a that would be a really a rewarding enterprise because so many different, you know, uh, all of these films are are valid and 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 interesting in some way. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing about monkey shines for me is is that it it definitely is like dealing with again characters like misery that and you mentioned with friday the 13th you know they're they're tremendously vulnerable in some way and Mm. i think that that's 
that's what I remember from the film, and I would love to revisit it. I mean, so many of these films, as I look at the filmography, like I'm, I'm kind of sad or if not embarrassed that I haven't, you know, revisited Martin or Monkey Shines, uh, you know, recently because or create or the Crazies, you know, because these are movies that made a big, big impression on me and. Mm-hmm. You know, even though he's not been tremendously prolific, certainly not into the '90s and the you know the the last two decades, those films are so important to me when I look back at my at my life and what informed my my sensibility. So we we've all been expecting. I mean, look, he he's been old for quite a while. Nobody's shocked. He had a good life. It's still it's still a passage it's still a, a a moment that we should we should honor and we should take note of and uh you know i certainly hope that it you know if we keep doing this i would love to look at some of these movies the way that we've looked at other films and sure. i hope we can double back to it you know in the future the three of us are are all of a very specific generation uh i don't know if you want to call it generation x or what but uh you know the the generation of people who grew up with uh you these very core horror people being like the fresh i'm talking about you know carpenter spielberg romero you know these these very very core you know filmmakers and all you know and you know the they're transformative to the medium as a whole, uh, as powerful as their influences. And, uh, I mean, all of them are, are up there now, you know? So we're kind of at a place where, you know, it's also like, you know, one day we're going to wake up and Ozzy Osbourne will be gone. You know, it's, it's the, yeah, it's, yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. So it's the inevitability of, you know, the fact that we have this little, this tiny little parentheses within eternity and this, this little candle flame, you know, protected by that parentheses. And, you know, uh, I, these guys make their living, you know, um, you know, talking about death and horror and mayhem and fear. Um, and you know, being on the side of death or talking about it or talking about horror, uh, it doesn't, you know, protect you. It doesn't give you any bonus points when the reaper shows up, you know, um, but uh, yeah, I, I think that you know these. This is probably the first of the true like kind of horror Mount Rushmore guys to go, and that's just going to increase. You know, that's going to we're going to be having these conversations again and again over the next few years. And um, you know, uh, ultimately, all we can do is uh, pick up the flag and keep carrying it. I would just say this: that uh, uh, two things. The first is that uh, at at age thirty-seven. Uh, going on 38, um, I, to this day, have zombie apocalypse nightmares. I'm trapped yeah. in a place, and the zombies are outside, and I'm trying to figure out how to get out, and if I get out, how to get away, and what weapons do I have, and yada, yada. I mean, that's that's a, a 30-year-old nightmare that goes right back to the first time that I watched this. Um, and uh, I just, I did read one uh, uh, comment, I think it was on Any Cool News, actually, but somewhere somebody said... Uh, you know, rest in peace, George. I I hope we don't see you again. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I want to note there that, that that like over the last few years, disaster preparedness has like taken on a sort of tongue-in-cheek zombie note, and I truly believe that there will be something 
that will happen somewhere where people stocked up or got their gear, you know, somewhat as a, a nod to the idea of a zombie apocalypse and it will mm-hmm. save fucking lives. Yeah. Know? that That's some, somewhere some dudes got like a shotgun and canned goods in his basement, you know, uh, almost semi ironically, yeah. you know, to fend off the zombie apocalypse. And, you know, when there's a flood or a riot or something like that, you know, he's going to be that guy who's going to be able to help out. And that's, and that's, he will, yeah. he will literally give an assist to George Romero, you know, consciously or unconsciously. Stories capture the zeitgeist and they inspire people to do things in real life and make changes. And I think that unequivocally, only good things have come from what George Romero leaves behind in terms Bill, of what he has inspired. I mean, I, I, besides like a raw, wry dark humor, I, I, I think the one main through line that we can really put a finger on through his work is the power of the individual versus the you know the the group the mass the society i mean even dawn of the dead you know two of our protagonists are cops and they're two cops who they they give up you know they they don't stick around to die with the rest of the police they're they bounce they jet uh which i guess you could easily call a dereliction of duty perhaps a cowardly act on some level but uh you know ultimately they turn out to be the smartest guys in the group you know, they, 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 you know, understand that the individual is, and yeah, and again, we're, we're talking about, you know, Night of the Living Dead, yeah. Day, the rest of them, it is, you know, Rugged the, the, individualism. Yeah, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I mean, as much as Rambo, you know, and stories of that ilk, you know, the, these are stories that, are, I, I mean, again, it's like society falls apart. Who's going to survive? The the rednecks, you know, the people who know how to hunt and finish, and they're armed and they have a tight knit community. You know, it's not you know the. But and yet, yeah, those aren't the protagonists. I mean, like Dwayne Jones and the 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 SWAT guys in Dawn. I mean, they're not the rednecks. Like we see the rednecks, we see that. Mm-hmm. But like, and 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 Romero doesn't like them. Yeah, yeah, he exactly. Like he, yeah. he respects their power, but he doesn't like them personally. Right, right. Uh, no, certainly, he's not interested <laughs> enough to make them the main characters. <laughs> no, no, no. Was, but he, although, but he pays yeah, tribute it, to them. He does pay tribute to yeah, their, and, their survival um, skills. And uh, you know, Vic, I, I, you know, very similarly, um, I also have a recurring nightmare. And that recurring nightmare is uh, I, the zombie apocalypse has come, and I'm trapped in a mall. And there's a multiplex with 12 screens, and all 12 of them are loaded with Diary of the Dead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I and I can't soon. escape. I can't escape. <laughs> <laughs> too soon okay sorry so half, half of them are survival <laughs> all right well we're gonna come back and talk about the dark half for like two hours no no we're not yeah. but um this is i been... like the dark half i i i, I if you want to talk about a movie that I, I saw exactly once in the theater yeah and i've never Me seen too. again it was the dark half and I, I remember enjoying it and um if anything, that was the first movie in which Michael Rooker made a very significant impression on me. I was just like, "Wow, he's a really talented guy." What? And so, and I, I've I've always been um, uh, happy to see him show up and stuff, whether it's Walking Dead, Walking Dead, or uh, Slither, or you know, or Guardians of the Galaxy. Like, I, I absolutely you know. love Rooker, but for me, it's Henry. I mean, come on. I mean, that was... oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I, oh, oh shit, I forgot about Henry. Yeah, yeah it's like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, all right, edit, edit that. <laughs> well, I want to wrap this up with uh, two things. 
questions. Like any mm-hmm. final thoughts that you know that either of you have on on the career and the impact. But also, is there anything, perhaps more interestingly, is there anything you wish he had done that we will never see? That that you you know your biggest regret as to you know the Romero film that didn't happen. I am literally sitting in my office where I do my writing. To the left is a, a an anthology book called The Living Dead. To my right is the Japanese poster for uh, Dawn of the Dead. Um, Romero is as much an artistic influence as much someone that that my writing my viewing my my fears touch on on a daily basis as much as almost anyone besides maybe Stephen King and H.P. Lovecraft I mean we were as we were recording this podcast when uh Wes Craven died and that was a shock um and goodness knows Wes Craven was a, a you know a titan and someone else on the the Mount Rushmore of horror directors mm-hmm. but it didn't affect me the way that uh that Romero's death affected me um, I, I just, you just can't put a, you can't put a value. You can't, you can't explain what Romero meant. And I think even just personally, my father was from Pittsburgh and I'm a Steelers fan. And I take this weird pride in the impact that he had on that city and the impact that the city had on him and on those films. I even, I, you can't see it from my office, but in my, in my foyer is a, there's a guy who does these, um, uh, alternate history pictures they're very wonderful uh i actually have the website up but i don't see his name on here immediately uh but if you look alternate history so he does these old old maps like just looks like like a legitimate old map or picture of uh cities and these sorts of things and so it's a picture of pittsburgh and allegheny uh counties and it says um uh you know the the living dead invade pittsburgh and underneath that it says when there is no more room in hell the dead will come to pittsburgh um, huh. and it's i mean so so it's there really is i i do just feel this kind of wonderful personal connection i mean if there's a honestly i if i wanted to see him do anything it would be another zombie film but i feel like at the end of the land of the dead he left the he left the world to the zombies and i don't think i don't think romero's zombie films could have ended any other way that's the thing is that there's no way that people were ever going to win we were always going to lose this was always going to be the zombies world at the end, and I think that's the way it should be. You, you should uh, tell, uh, write that down and speak that verbatim to your sons every night before they go to bed. <laughs> I, I do, Mike. I do. <laughs> and, by, and behind me is the uh, the needle point that Emily has done that says those exact things that I speak, <laughs> that I repeat to my sons every night before they go to bed. Um, yeah, I, 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 you know, the the easy answer is a sequel to this or zombie movie that, but um, I, I think I would have liked to have seen Romero do his Vietnam movie. You know, um, I, I, I think that that era was such an element of, of his earlier stuff that, uh, you know, I, I, I think it would have been something that would have predated platoon. I think it would have been, you know, if I had to go back in time and give him, you know, an amount of money in 1973, let's say, you know, I would have asked him to do his, his Vietnam film, uh, to see what Romero would, would have to say uh, on that subject. 
uh, ultimately, I, I should also, as, as a complete sidebar, uh, this isn't a Six Degrees, but in the mid-90s, I did write a role-playing game called Dead. And it was because there was no at that time, there was no role playing game that was just purely, uh, you know, surviving a zombie apocalypse role playing game. It was basically like, you know, if you, you know, it was, it was lifting directly from Romero's world, you know, there you know, and there were fat, you know, rules for fat zombies. But it was you know, basically the idea that you're fighting slow zombies and that was your situation. And obviously I didn't do anything with it, but um. You know, I, 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 and this guy's work has been on my mind for, you know, decades now, <laughs> and it remains so. I mean, it's like I said, man, I, I mean, he's one of the first bottles on the shelf that I reach for. Now, speaking of that, I uh, lift this glass to you, George Romero, and drink deeply of, uh, of your brilliance. And uh, thank you for allowing me to be a uh, part of um, your time on this earth. You're here. As a as a kid and in my formative years, you know, you, Mike, you use the phrase hardwiring. Absolutely, there's nobody from a filmmaking standpoint that made a bigger impression on me. And those films, you know, and their the sensibility and the the depth and the complexity of what he was doing, always informed everything i've i've tried to write and you know i've written my zombie film and my zombie book and actually the most successful things i've ever done personally and i i I have to give him a lot of credit for that like you know anyone would who's working in that area and i i I think that in terms of what he didn't do uh, you know he's always expressed this this sort of disappointment and a longing for breaking out of the horror genre. And I think as Mike, you mentioned the idea of him doing a Vietnam film is, is exactly the type of thing that I would like to see. I I wanted, if anything, I I'm not like, give us another zombie movie, George. I, I wish he had really had the budget and the creative control to make his non horror film. I, I, and that never really happened. And I think he always lamented it. And I think maybe we'll always regret that he, he didn't get to at the prime of his powers, because I think that that the combination of all of his gifts and all of his thematic interests and all of the things that he wanted to say and all of the insights that he had, you know, like the fact that it always had to kind of be tucked in along the way, you know, in a horror film, uh, is it worked to the benefit of those films, but you know I would have I would I wish there was a non-horror film that was truly you know the George Romero cynical societally scathing critique action thriller you know like I I wish we had that movie. This entire conversation is about what his movies have meant to us. You know, we begin at the top of it. Of, you know, what was it was the first time you saw it, you know X Y Z? What it mean to you? Uh, and and you know what these films, uh, how they impacted us, this that everything else. I I think that you know what Ebert recognized was that uh, Romero was a uh, he was a, uh, an artist of cinema. 
And I, I think that if you're going to create art, then you're going to talk about the, the human experience. And because that is the way that you're going to, uh, you know, have a conversation with your fellow humanity. I mean, you know, if we're going to create art and call ourselves artists uh, or even just, you know, even artists, you know, it's such an eye roll of a term almost. But I mean, if you're just going to communicate with your fellow humanity, I mean, it's like if you tell the truth and and pour it through a, a the focus of a particular vision that's yours and is unique. I, I think that, you know, if we're going to take away anything from him, it's not zombie movies. It's, you know, that, that you can have an impact on your fellow humanity, you know, in, in a very wide way by just, you know, focusing your ideas and, and talking about what it is to be a, a member of the species. So anyways, uh, Agreed. That, that, I, I just want to comment on that, that, that the humanity of the characters in his films yeah. It is the most powerful thing and the most enduring exactly. thing that you yeah. you can look at these movies 50 years from now when we're in the fucking grave and mm-hmm. be like yeah those like there's a authenticity and a truth these are not characters that are designed to be pawns in some artist's narrative like there's a fucking connection to who people really are. And I think this is a Pittsburgh kind of a thing, you know, like the fact that this guy did not have a silver spoon in his mouth was not, you know, feted at a young age for being a brilliant artiste and whatnot. Like the fact that like he has been able to render in narrative form snapshots of, of real people. I think that, that adds something to his horror films that, you know, many, many movies of the genre, they may otherwise be stylistically brilliant. They may like, I'm talking about like Italian films, for example, Mm -hmm. Uh, they might be disturbing on any number of levels, but do they really say anything about what it was to be a human being during that period of time? Probably not, but his films absolutely are time capsules. And say so much more than just like visceral, run and chase, suspense, horror, you know, all of the trappings of genre. They're almost fucking superfluous to his films. And I I think that 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 is ultimately, for me, his enduring legacy. As I've often mentioned in the past, one of my pet theories is a good genre movie is a drama that is you know, haunting on top of it. And, you know, if we're going to take the uh, example of Night of the Living Dead, if you put Ben and the Coopers and the young couple and Barbara and even her dopey brother uh, into that farmhouse and and, if you just gave them drinks and dinner and let them talk to each other, you would still have a movie. You you don't need zombies for that, (laughs) you know, for that movie to still be, for that story to still be effective. Uh, I I heard someone say that it's like Beckett. That it's it's you could do it as a play with people that are just trapped in any place with the with themselves. Yeah, it's just raining outside, you know, and you you would still have a movie, you know. Um, and I, I, you know, there's a very small percentage of films of of that setup that can say the same. So well, George Romero, you will be missed, but you will not be forgotten. Indeed, I have nothing more to say about George Romero. 
thank you all for listening and thank you gentlemen for participating in a great conversation and thank you Vic for uh, suggesting this because honestly I don't think we would have done it had you not so I really appreciate it yeah Mike thank you for uh, taking a little time out I know you're in the the middle of some some busy and exciting things (laughs) well I am my my life is defined by 18 hour days at the moment but um but you you love what you do yeah, this this is a pickle jar that I that I crawled into myself. So you know, it's it's like, yeah, I was, yeah, it's very rare that I can say that I spend eighteen hours a day doing something that I thoroughly enjoy. But um, you know, there you go. Well, the good news to all of our listeners is that uh, after this episode drops, we actually have two more in the hopper. Uh, yeah, the, the much awaited, uh, I hope, uh, second it follows episode. And uh, also another film, The Void, and we'll try to bring that to you soon. But uh, apologies if we make references to, um, you know, March and January or whatever of <laughs> 2017, because uh, that was uh, recorded before this one. But uh, thank you all for listening, and uh, we'll be back soon. Adios. Actually, guys, mm-hmm. if, I can, if I can just drop one quick Feel free. plug uh... I believe by the time this comes out, you'll be able to check me out over on the Hold Up podcast, uh, hosted by uh, two old colleagues of mine, uh, John Nelson and John Longino. Uh, we were discussing the John Carpenter classic uh, in the Mouth of Madness. So, anyways, if you hear this, go check it out. It's a good podcast. They're good guys, and I thought we had a, a terrific, very interesting conversation. Yeah, is that right, Trader? That's very interesting. That's cross pollination, Mike. That's okay. what that is, right? <laughs> All right, guys. I'm gonna I'm gonna get back to work. I'll talk to you later. Good night, Bye, everyone. Guys. Thanks. Bye.